Let's pray. Father, we continue to pray, lifting up our hearts to you, expressing the desires that you would show us the living Savior. It is because we recognize our deep need, singular need, of knowing him as he is, of hearing him speak to us as only he can speak. These are days of such confusion and turmoil, days of uncertainty, where even at our best moments, we don't understand the life we are living. The news changes daily. Our scenarios change sometimes hourly. And we are a people who are desperate for a solid foundation on which to stand. You are stripping away so many things that we have placed our trust in. You're removing some of the props culturally that we have long leaned on. And you are doing a good work, though it is a painful work, because you are bringing us to that place where we recognize we are not sovereign. We are not self-sufficient. We do not possess the knowledge and understanding necessary for this life. We are created dependent beings who need God. And we ask that today you would push away all of the confusion, the fear, settle our doubts, and bring us into that sweet place where we see you as you are, not even as we imagine you might be, or even through our own conclusions, the God that we suspect you to be, but that we would see from your word, you are the God who has revealed himself generation by generation, personally, powerfully, unchangeably. We need you. And there are some here today, Lord, who are running from you. They are determined to set the course of life as they think best. They are determined to live in places of their own choosing and pursue professions or vocational uh, work of, of their own choice. And yet in your great grace, you have stood in their way. And their experience might be different from Jonah's in many ways, and yet at its core, it's the same. And the frustration that they are experiencing at this moment is actually your grace at work to bring them home. And so I ask that you would give them the humility to recognize you alone are God. For others, Father, who truly want to serve you, to be the people that you have called us to be, to, to serve in locations and by means that you have ordained, but just feel frustrated that nothing is happening. They, they see no visible fruit for this life of, of service and faith that they are genuinely living. Encourage their hearts today with the eternal, unchangeable realities that you are God. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that through our time in the Word, you would shape our thinking in such a way that we would walk out not only with a clear understanding of who you are, but with the joy that results from seeing you in your glory and in your greatness with a confident expectation that hard as these days may be, greater days, perfect days, unending, eternally joyful days are coming. And so we ask 
that you would establish your dominion in our hearts now that we might truly love you, serve you, and enjoy you forever. It is in your name we pray these things. Amen. Did you see the headline just this past week? ABC, among other news outlets, reported that scientists discover ultra-black deep sea fish among the darkest creatures ever found. That's a photograph that's been enhanced a little bit because these creatures are of, of such uh, a composition that they actually reflect like 0.043% of any light that would shine on them. Listen to this. The fish, called the ultra-black fish, which live anywhere between 200 to 2,000 meters below surface, are so dark that they often appear just as a silhouette, according to one of the authors, Alexander Davis, uh, of the study, which was published in Current Biology. They were able to capture the fish by dropping a large net down into the sea, anywhere between 200 and 2,000 meters below surface, and running it through the water. Davis believes the fish they found are just a small subset of the ultra-black fish that exist in the sea. He says, it's likely there are many more of these super-black deep-sea fish out there. The odds that we've captured every single ultra-black fish seems really slim. And some of you say, that is one more reason to stay out of the ocean. <laughs> or at least wade where I can see my toes. Or swim in those parts where, you know, it's just really safe. We, we talked last week very briefly about the mysteries of the deep. And some of them are amazing and some of them are actually terrifying. And I think if that creature swam up to you or me in the water, I, I would evacuate immediately. And so would you. You know, as we continue our study of Jonah, God has a different kind of encounter for his prophet in the deeps of the sea. What looks like certain death for Jonah becomes one of the greatest rescue stories ever told, but it comes in the deeps. Jonah, too, is a powerful reminder to us that there is never a deep place of distress where we are beyond the rescuing grace of God. But we, like Jonah, don't always recognize that deep, dark, watery, uh, weed-infested place as a, a place of God's grace. So as we read through chapter 2 together, I want you to pay attention to God because as I said from the outset of this little brief series, He is the central character. Even though we often refer to this as Jonah and the whale or whatever else you want to add to Him, it's really God and His grace. And this is a rescue of grace. So you follow along, either on the screen or in your copy of the scriptures, as we read these 10 verses of Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, 
Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. It's such a remarkable turn of events, isn't it? We went from the stormy sea on the deck of the ship where the sailors and the captain were trying to determine who was responsible for this divine storm, this tempest that clearly was beyond just a a bad weather pattern that they had sailed into. We watched as those sailors struggled uh, a week ago in, in our study to row the boat to shore. They were reluctant to cast Jonah overboard, even though he said, this is what you must do, this is the solution. Throw me overboard and the storm will will quiet. We noted that they had more regard for his life than he had for Nineveh because when God issued the call for him to leave his homeland and travel the five or six hundred miles to Nineveh to prophesy uh, against them and to warn them of God's coming judgment, his, his love for them was non-existent and his determination to flee the presence of God took hold of his heart. But here God comes in rescuing grace and he begins to work in a powerful way. Here's the first thing I want you to note. This, this, this testimony of Jonah is not actually laid out chronologically, but I kind of want to walk through the sequence of events that he experienced and his response to God's work in his heart chronologically. So hold on with me as we'll skip around through these 10 verses and note what God is doing and how Jonah responds. First of all, notice, with, notice this with me. It is God who has cast Jonah into the deeps. When God moves upon the sailors, giving them no other option, and the text says initially they were the ones who hurled Jonah into the sea, Jonah will actually come back in verse 3 and say, it was you, God, who cast me into the deep. God's actually doing something that's really kind for Jonah. He's actually exposing Jonah to the deadly deeps or depths of his rebellion. The consequences of sin are always greater than we can ever estimate or fathom. And God in his kindness is giving Jonah a taste of the deadly consequences of his sin. Look again at verse 3. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. This is the description of a near-death experience, and there are no dark tunnels with beams of light beckoning him to come to the light. There are no visions of loved ones who have preceded Jonah in death to comfort him as he passes over the other side. No, it's, it's water and weeds. It's darkness and deeps, but it's grace. 
It's God's grace to expose Jonah to the terrors of his sin and the consequences. God is not simply delivering Jonah from death in this moment. He's actually delivering Jonah from Jonah. There's a second thing that you see in the text, and go back to verse 17 of chapter 1. We really could include this with the portion we read from chapter 2. For here, God in his kindness is actually isolating Jonah in the belly of this fish. The text tells us that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Now think about the fact that the the sailors were of the opinion that that they rode hard enough they could get to shore. So apparently they're close enough to the shoreline that maybe they could see it between the breaks of of, the, the violent storm they were in. Maybe they just knew this is where we are. But apparently they were close enough to the shoreline where... Either they could row to it if the winds hadn't been contrary, or maybe after Jonah was tossed overboard, what, you know, why didn't God float a piece of debris, all that cargo that they had jettisoned? Maybe you could have just latched onto some kind of crate, something that was floating in the water and, and drifted to the shoreline. It seems that he was close enough for that type of thing, but God had a different purpose, didn't he? And it's not simply that God had appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, but the story unfolds for us that Jonah was actually in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. It's like the ultimate disciplinary timeout, isn't it? God in grace puts Jonah in a place where he's absolutely cut off from everything that he knows that would make him comfortable. Cut off from every other person who might speak a word of confusion or false consolation. Three days and three nights, he's in the belly of this fish, a fish appointed by God. As one author notes, this this appointment stresses that God's sovereign rule over events for the accomplishment of his purposes is the big force. So here's the prophet who took every measure available to him to flee the presence of the Lord, and he cannot get away from the God that he said, I'm done with you. It's grace. And Jonah's isolation gives him time to reflect, and it actually produces something that surprises us. Because remember last week, we were noting that that Jonah was not only in rebellion against God, he resigned his prophetic office in ministry. It's not just that he didn't want to go to Nineveh, was asking God for a new assignment. It says he was fleeing the very presence of God. But let's look at how Jonah responds to the exposure and isolation. Verse 4, then I said, you see, he's been reflecting on his situation. And what does he say in verse 4? I am driven away from your sight. I am driven away. He was the one who thought he was in control, didn't he? Who is doing the driving here? You know, as you and I so often believe, Jonah himself believed, I'm in control. I'll go where I want to go. I'll choose the means that uh, gets me there. And when God said, go to Nineveh, Jonah thought, I don't think so. He went down to Joppa, remember, and and purchased the fare to Tarshish. But now he realizes that his sin and rebellion have taken him to a place that he really didn't plan to go or ever expect to go. He's realizing that something or someone else actually has the wheel. Ravi Zacharias is quoted often as saying, sin will take you farther than you want to go 
keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. I don't know that that saying is original with him, but if you look it up, his name appears first with it, so he has popularized it. It is certainly true. And one of the delusions of our rebellion and sin is that we are in control of our lives. And beloved, we are not. Never have been, never will. Not even at our, our greatest moments of obedience and humble service are we in control. There's only one being in the universe who is absolutely in control of all things. And that is the Lord God. So Jonah has time to reflect But that reflection turns into active remembering. Look again at verse 4, because as he begins to recall some things, he says, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Skip to verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Now, geographically speaking, Jonah may not be as far away from the temple as a Hebrew man could go, but spiritually speaking, he's as far away from that place of of worship in the presence of God as a man could go. The temple was the, the place where God had promised to meet his people, Israel. In the temple, if you think back to the books of Moses where the construction of the tabernacle first and then Solomon's temple that would come afterwards. But the instructions that God gave included that most holy place, the holy of holies, and the central piece of furniture in the holy of holies was the Ark of Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was that place that was overlaid with with a golden cover That cover was known as the mercy seat. And God said through Moses to Israel, that's the particular place where I will meet you. And so when that tabernacle was consecrated, when the temple was consecrated, there was visible smoke that filled the place and ascended. And it was the visible sign to the people of God, he's here, he's with you. But once a year, the high priest was authorized to enter that most holy place, and he would take the blood of a bull that had been sacrificed, and also a ram, and that blood in particular was called the blood of the atonement. And there that blood would be sprinkled upon the mercy seat, and the the high priest would make atonement for his sins and for the sins of the people. And God's wrath was appeased, and his just requirements for a sacrifice were fulfilled and when the priest exited the holy of holies and stood before the people they had the assurance that their sins were forgiven they were in right relationship with God that's the significance of the temple and when Jonah says when my life was fainting away I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple for the Jewish reader who is hearing this story, for those who grew up in that context, it's crystal clear to them that Jonah is a man who is not only remembering, but he's repenting of his sins, and he is returning to the Lord. And that's where we go back to verse 1 and see that he recognizes his only hope is to call upon the Lord. Look at verse 1 with me again. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. 
Sheol is the word for the realm of the dead. And there Jonah is in that place of distress, and God hears him. You know, the distress is his own doing. It's nobody else's fault but, but his, so to speak. We sang just a little bit ago some beautiful lines that tie perfectly into this, the compassion hymn, which we're learning intentionally in conjunction with the series in Jonah because God's grace and compassion really are stunning. But in that first stanza we sang, there is an everlasting kindness you lavished on us when the radiance of heaven... Radiance was capitalized, if you remember singing that. That speaks of, of Jesus himself. When the radiance of heaven came to rec- rescue the lost, you called the sheep without a shepherd to leave their distress. And, and the sad part of this world we're living in is that we're the ones who've created this distress. The, the blame game never ends right now, does it? One political party blames the other political party. One social class blames another social class. One group blames another group. The reality is we as a human race are to blame. This distress is our doing. But the great gospel reality before us here in this powerful story of Jonah's rebellion and God's grace is that when people like us call upon the Lord, when we cry from our own distress, the distress of our own creation, he hears and he answers. What an amazing reality this is that though Jonah rebelled and resigned and ran from God, the Lord is still apparently glad for Jonah to cry out. And even, did you notice in that verse, I prayed to the, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. God is still happy to be identified as Jonah's God. You know, if other people offended us the way Jonah had offended God, you you and I'd be saying, I'm done with you. Especially over a lifetime of hurt and pain sometimes, right? We reach the end, we're like, nope. But there is no deep place of distress that you and I by our sin could ever reach that God's grace would not actually go deeper. He returns to the Lord. And now let's look at the particulars of God's rescue. Look at verse 2, he answered me, you heard my cry. This is God, not through a mediator, this is God, not through an angelic messenger, through a third party, but this is God himself hearing and answering. What a gracious God this is who hears the cries of people from their own distress. What a gracious God that he would listen to the prayer of this man who only days before had said, I'm done with you. I'm done with this stupid prophet's job. I'm running as far away from you as I can imagine a boat would take me. He not only hears and answers, but verse 8, Jonah speaks of the steadfast love of the Lord. Now he he warns, as it were, his hearers of something, but I think this is born out of his own experience. Those who pay regard to vain idols, what happens to them? They forsake their hope of steadfast love. You know, Jonah uses two Hebrew words that we've translated into the English as vain idols that speak of of physical idols that many, even in Israel, were worshiping in that particular day. Uh, But it it also has a broader concept of emptiness. Empty breath would actually be one way that you could translate those Hebrew words. And it's certainly true that idolaters worship what can only be characterized as empty, but wasn't Jonah's self-determination to flee the presence of God like empty breath? 
Wasn't it a form of, of his own idolatry? And he may not have set up some stone image or some wooden figure and bowed low before it, but he was bowing to his own will. And what empty breath it is when you and I serve our own hearts. When we seek to live life on our own terms, by our own plans, as if we are sovereign, we are exactly like those who pay regard to vain idols. But God does something remarkable, doesn't he? You see, when Jonah returns to him, he's actually returning to the one who is characterized by steadfast love, the one in whose heart dwells this covenant faithfulness. God's steadfast love is his determination to love rebels like you and me and Jonah despite our sin. In some ways, it's difficult to see the power and beauty of God's steadfast love unless it's hung against the backdrop of some really dark and bleak sin and rebellion. That's what makes the story of Hosea if you've not read that Old Testament prophecy, you must read that story. God calls his prophet Hosea to take a wife who is, an, who is an immoral woman. She's unfaithful to him, and even after she conceives children, two of those children receive names that are indicative of the fact that Hosea is not sure if they're his kids or somebody else's. She eventually leaves him, and yet Hosea will not forsake her. He is a beautiful, powerful picture of God's steadfast love over rebels like us. And I read these stories and, and each of us must read them and ask the question, is my sin any less offensive, any less heinous in God's sight than Jonah's or Hosea's wife or King David or Peter or any number of people recorded for us in the scriptures? And the answer is always emphatically, no, my sin is not less than theirs. I'm a person just as you are in desperate need of this steadfast love. Think of the ways that God expressed this covenant faithful love to Jonah as we've seen already in the story. God could have let Jonah reach Tarshish and never again meet with him face to face. But in steadfast love, he hurled this mighty tempest on the sea and stopped Jonah on that boat. God could have let Jonah die in the deeps as his rebellion deserved, but in steadfast love, he appointed a great fish who swallowed Jonah and kept him alone and isolated so that he could process where his sin was really taking him over those three days and three nights. God could have ignored the prayers of this rebel prophet in the belly of Sheol and left him not only to be fish food for a few more days or weeks, but to experience the, the deep and, and grievous consequences of his sin. But out of steadfast love, this God answers the cries of this prophet and responds with an extraordinary love. And he would do the same for you if you would call upon him today. You can't find one moment in, in the Old Testament or the New Testament where God comes to somebody who's in deep sin and says, you know what, clean up your act, then we'll talk. Pay for your sins at least in part, and then I'll kick in the rest. You can't find one account where God turns away from a desperate person who cries out and says, Lord, I've made a mess of things. Would you help me? And God says, sorry, because such a response would be inconsistent for him, and it would, it would actually be a contradiction to this great reality that he's the God of steadfast love. And you will not find this kind of, of love in any 
other being. No other experience. Well, as he comes into this beautiful place of of rescue, Jonah then begins to worship God. And look with me here at verse 9. Jonah says, I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. The three aspects of his worship. The first is thanksgiving. How deeply grateful he is that he's not been abandoned to Sheol. Are you grateful today that God has not given you what you and I deserve? It's not just death itself. It's death in hell. That's what we deserve. But we're not there. We're here. God's word being opened before us. Not not even just alive on planet earth as opposed to being in a place like hell, but in a place where we have access to God's truth, where we can truly know him as he is. The voice of thanksgiving, Jonah says, I will sacrifice to you. And again, think in terms of an Old Testament saint. Sacrifice is what happened in the context of the temple precinct. Sacrifice is what was necessary to restore relationship and know that God had forgiven sins and that you were reconciled to him once again. Sacrifice is something that had so much great significance. Jonah's not talking about saying, you know, I got an extra 20 in my, in my wallet. I think I'll put it in the offering next week as a sacrifice, a token of my gratitude to God. No, he's talking about the specific requirements of bringing a blood sacrifice that he might know full forgiveness. And then the the third part of his worship is obedience. You see, God's not interested in a kind of spiritual lip service. He wants ultimately to see our our hearts transformed and then a lifestyle of transformation that flows out of that. And, And Jonah now says, I will pay what I vowed. Are you walking in obedience today? It's possible to be grateful for God's grace and yet still be trying to live your life sovereignly as as if you can call the shots. Some of you try to negotiate with God's word, with God's law, as if, well, those are outdated commands. Come on, after all, we live in the 21st century. We've progressed in our knowledge and understanding of of life and the world and politics and our sexuality and, and family and all of these things. Come on. No, listen, God's word is given for your good and for his glory, are you truly obedient? Because if you're still trying to negotiate the terms of God's instructions and and law, you may not have actually come to him in the kind of humility and brokenness over your sin and the kind of desperation that moved Jonah to call upon the Lord for rescue. Well, Jonah's rescue and his worship culminate In this powerful one sentence at the end of verse 9. And it's really the culminating cry of all of those who experience the rescue of God. And it is simply this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. What does Jonah mean by this? Very briefly, simply that salvation is first the personal work of God. It's his from start to finish. It's not a shared operation, like I said, where we clean up a little bit of our act or clean up as much of our life as we can. And after a period of time of obedience and service and consecration, then God steps in and and like puts his portion in on it. No, it's all his work. It's his personal work. Secondly, it's his exclusive work. 
Jonah couldn't save himself in that moment, and you know what? You and I can't save ourselves. Salvation belongs to God. And in the third place, it is his gracious work. Jonah didn't deserve that rescue, but there God was saving him. You and I don't deserve God's rescuing work from our sin either, do we? But here God is rescuing us. Salvation belongs to God. There's more to this story. It will not be revealed for several hundred years. Almost 800 years later, Jesus makes reference to this uh, Old Testament prophet. And in Matthew 12, he says... Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at, that, at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now let me give you just a little bit of background. Some religious leaders had come to Jesus, as they so often did, to challenge him. And they do it under the, the guise of a spiritual request. And they actually say to Jesus, show us a sign. They're always looking for a sign that Jesus would prove he's sent from God, that his teaching is authoritative. And the reality is they're blind to what he's already doing. They're ignoring a multitude of miracles that he has performed and hundreds and thousands of witnesses who would stand and say, I saw with my eyes what he did. I tasted the bread that he miraculously provided. We saw the former demoniac, you know, clothed and in his right mind. So it's not that these religious leaders lack signs. They're just trying to press Jesus to the point where they can accuse him of some kind of blasphemy and put him to death. And that's ultimately what they do. But look again at what Jesus says here. He, he's not actually giving them a sign in that moment, but he's saying something's going to happen that is like what Jonah experienced. Jonah in the belly of that whale or fish uh, for three nights and three days. He says, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's speaking prophetically of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And then he says at the end of verse 41, something greater than Jonah is here. Someone greater than Jonah is here. You know, Jesus fulfills the three uh, specific offices of prophet, priest, and king perfectly. He's all of those. You go back to Jonah with me for just a moment. He's one of many Old Testament prophets, one, uh, one of many who actually were intended by God, ordained by God to not just prophesy the truth, the message of God, but to model something of the great prophet, Jesus, who was to come. Oh, how imperfectly Jonah fulfilled that role and type. When God called him to go, he fled, ran, not like Jesus at all. We'll even see at the, in the last two chapters when we come through the conclusion next week that even as he goes to Nineveh finally, his attitude is not what it ought to be and he gets angry with God because he's shown mercy to an enemy nation. He's just not like Jesus at all. But how wonderful it is for us and what a place for us to rest our souls as we see Jesus who comes and as he's as as is recorded in the gospels always did the will of the father 
was always on mission, always in the right place, always preaching the perfect message that the Father intended for him, always serving in exactly the way that God the Father had designed for him, fully embracing every part of the prophetic ministry that God had designed for him, fully, obediently, joyfully. But even here, there's something distinct, something greater taking place because Jesus didn't simply enter a deep, dark place for three days and three nights and survive. He actually died. And not simply as an example for people like you and me, but as the substitute. In a sense, he went deeper than Jonah deserved to go. He went into a darker place than you and I deserve to go because of our sin. That's why Romans 4 verse 25 says Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Matthew 20 verse 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus went into the heart of the earth for three days and three nights in order that you and I might never die. And he went there not only as the great and perfect prophet. He also went there as the priest. Hebrews tells us, and just as a, almost a side note in this message, but such a powerful truth, that when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, the writer of Hebrews says, he entered once for all into the holy places and, and the writer of Hebrews has made clear he's not talking about an earthly temple, an earthly tabernacle. He's talking about the heavenly reality itself. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Oh, someone far greater than Jonah was present 2,000 years ago. And a work far greater than just a survival mission was being done. It was the work of salvation. All of this and so much more, Jesus endured for you and me. The truth is, by our sin, we deserve not simply a watery grave at the gates of Sheol or the darkness of a fish's belly. We deserve hell itself. But praise God that through this rescuing, steadfast love of God in Christ, the sin and rebellion of people like Jonah, like you, like me, is remedied in Jesus forever. And so we, like Jonah, yet with even greater understanding, may say in full confidence and hope with all joy and a clear conscience that through Christ, salvation belongs to the Lord. Are you running from God today? Are you living with some kind of delusion that you can call the shots, pick where you want to live, do what you want to do, be who and what you think you ought to be? And maybe God has actually brought you into a really deep, dark place at this moment. And up till now, you're nothing but angry about it. And like, why is this happening to me? And God, don't talk to me. And I prayed to you once, and you clearly didn't hear my prayer. And you're just in an angry rage right now. And maybe that frustration you're experiencing is actually God's grace at work. Because just as he was loving enough to put Jonah in a place of of isolation and reflection. So now he's cornering you saying, will you stop trying to be God? Because you're not, and it will kill you. And if you're honest, you'd have to say, this distress I'm in, 
It's my own doing. But the same reality that Jonah experienced can be yours. You don't have to remain in that place of distress. But by faith, you can walk right out of it as you look to heaven's temple. And the Christ who is there this day, both the sacrifice for your sins and the great high priest who would mediate for you, and if you cry to him as Jonah cried long ago, if you would call to him, he also would hear and answer you today, and the rescue operation would begin. It doesn't mean that you will be magically delivered in the next 60 seconds from all that distress, but I guarantee you, God is expert at saving people from it all. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Would you bow your heads with me, please? As we meditate and, and then move into a brief time of prayer, just responding to the truth, what is the thing that God desires from you right now? It might be the confession of sin that he has convicted your heart of this morning. Maybe it's just a fresh consecration to saying, Lord, I've, I'm so tempted to try to be my own God. I'm, I'm just not actively trusting you. Those are vain attempts, just a form of idolatry. God, I, I'm coming back to you again saying, rescue me, save me. It's my only hope. Father, you see every heart collectively, our sin and rebellion, our spiritual indifference, it's overwhelming. But there's greater grace in you than there is sin in us. And as deep and dark as some of our distress is right now, and most of it self-inflicted, your grace will run even deeper. And I'm praying that you would pull each person here who is down in the deeps from those hopeless depths and take away the confusion, the fear, the pride, and the hardness of heart and rescue. Give us grace to call and cry that we may be saved. Now, Father, if you would please take your truth, your words, seal them to our hearts so that we may believe what you have called us to believe, that we may do those commands that are clear and that you are calling us into, that we may know the blessing of your presence as you draw near to us, even as we seek to draw near to you. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.